1: Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Keller Kimbro about his recent book, Wondrous Brutal Fictions, Eight Buddhist Tales from the Early Japanese Puppet Theater, published by Columbia University Press in 2013. Kimbro provides us with eight beautifully translated sekkyo and kojo pieces from the 17th century, Sekkyo was a type of publicly performed Buddhist storytelling that focused on the forces of karma and the miraculous origins of celebrity Buddhist icons. This art was revived in the early 17th century, when chanters of Sekkyo began using puppets in their performances in the manner of the emergent puppet theater. Kojo-ruri, on the other hand, was the earliest form of Japanese puppet theater and appears to have developed out of late medieval performance traditions. While we know little about how the pieces translated here were actually performed, as written works, they pull the reader into a world of horror and heroism, in which we are exposed to the depths of human cruelty, child slavery, torture, senseless violence, as well as to some of humans' more redeeming qualities and the salvific and destructive power of Buddhist divinities. In the introduction, Kimbrough outlines the history of the two genres, Sekyo and Kojo-Ruri, addresses the ways in which the two overlapped, Many stories were performed both as sekyo and kojōrūri at different times, and discusses some of these pieces' salient characteristics. He also explains how publishing houses began to produce shōhōn, or woodblock-printed playbooks attributed to particular chanters, thereby turning a performance genre into a literary one. Most such texts were accompanied by pictures, and Kimbro has included 53 monochrome reproductions of such illustrations in his book. This feature of the work at hand provides the reader with a better sense of how 17th century Japanese would have experienced printed editions of Sekkyo and Kojo-ruri. However, one need not be particularly interested in Sekkyo or Kojo-ruri, or even Japanese literature for that matter, to appreciate these stories, particularly as translated here. While Japanese specialists would be better positioned to understand the cultural, religious, and literary themes appearing therein, and will be helped by footnotes throughout that alert the reader to Japanese puns that cannot be rendered into English, few readers will be able to wrench themselves away from the account of the young siblings Anjunohime and Zushio Maru as they suffer unspeakable horrors at the hands of Sancho Dayu and his wicked son— or fail to be moved by the tragedy of Karukhaya's predicament as he contemplates whether or not to reveal his true identity to his forlorn son. Similarly, regardless of prior knowledge, all readers will marvel at the fortitude of the female characters in these stories, be elated by the characters' eventual redemption or well-deserved punishment, and find light-heartedness in the humor that punctuates the violence and sadism of these wondrous, brutal fictions." This book will be particularly useful to those with interests in Japanese puppet theater, Buddhist preaching in Japan, Edo period literature and performance, Japanese Buddhist literature, popular Buddhist literature and performance, and the relationship between performance and text. Though as already stated, the eloquence of the translations and the gripping nature of these narratives are such that few readers will not find the eight pieces thoroughly engrossing. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners. Today I'm with Keller Kimbrough, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Wondrous Brutal Fictions, Eight Buddhist Tales from the Early Japanese Puppet Theater, published by Columbia University Press in 2013. Keller Kimbrough is Associate Professor in the Department of Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Colorado Boulder. Wondrous Brutal Fictions is his second monograph-length work. He has co-edited one volume, co-edited a special uh, issue of the Japanese Journal of Religious Studies, and published in a variety of journals, primarily on medieval and Edo period Japanese literature. Keller, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Hi, Luke. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, pleasure's mine. Um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to the study of Japan, and more specifically, uh, to the study of Japanese literature.
0: Sure. Well, it's really all one big accident. Uh, I never had any particular interest in Japan um, originally. When I was, I guess, when I was in college, um, but I've always loved literature, uh, and ever since I was a child, I loved to be read to. Uh, once I learned to read, I loved to read stories myself, and um, and I just read, read, read. Uh, mm. When I was in college, I became an English major. Uh, I had wanted to go on to graduate stu- school to study uh, English and American literature, uh, but it was very competitive at that time, and and after. Mm. College. I wound up sort of in Japan on a fluke. Uh, While I was there, I started studying Japanese language uh, and started reading literature and translation. And the more I read and the more I studied, the more interested I became. Uh, And eventually, uh, I met Donald Keene and. tokyo and uh, and i told him my interest in japanese literature that i sort of recently discovered and he said oh well you ought to go to columbia university and study <laughs> there and and i thought that was a great idea yeah. uh, he actually told me he said well when you apply you should write on your application that i recommend that you get in oh and so i did <laughs> wow. uh, and, uh he was recently retired at that point but um yeah. fortunate for me uh, i got in yeah. and uh, one thing led to another and i continued doing this and um I ended up going to Yale for my PhD
1: Mm -hmm.
0: after doing the MA at Columbia, and
1: I kept reading and writing and um, sort of found what I love to do in life. So how did you come then specifically, um, if if, if you can remember, sometimes these sorts of things that we can't even remember how we got into, but uh, how did you come to focus specifically on the puppet theater? Um, And if if, if you want to talk about this now, how did you come to pick the eight? Uh, specifically the eight works that you translate in this book?
0: Sure. Well, I came to all of this very circuitously. Um, My interest, gosh... uh... Originally, when I first started writing my dissertation, was more in uh, Setsuwa mm. and short medieval fiction, zoshi, And those are really the subjects of my first book, Preachers, Poets, Women in the Way, mm-hmm. that came out in 2008. Uh, and I, I was interested in sort of um, stories that people told about other stories, and particularly ghastly stories, scandalous stories about Heian women poets, that sort of thing. Um, but the more I got into that, the more that I read, I started encountering this very interesting group of texts, Katarimono. Sort of um, mm. orally transmitted tales, mm-hmm. uh which, which were purveyed in the late medieval period, really throughout the medieval period and the early Edo period by itinerant preacher entertainers. Some people would be based at particular temples, others traveled from place to place. But but these were really oral storytelling traditions. Mm-hmm. And my interest in the Kojo-Ruri theater grew out of that, really. And and the book really is more about Sekyo than kojo um, the second kind of puppet theater that and Sekyo in the late medieval period was a Katari mono, an oral storytelling genre, Mm -hmm. uh, fundamentally religious tale telling genre. But in the, the early 17th century, it came to be taken up in theaters uh, and practiced on the stage. And so um, it's very interesting that I, that now that I've talked to some people about this book, that it's come out that, that, Mm Many other people, scholars of Edo period theater, are somewhat surprised or have been, some of the people I've spoken to have been surprised at the direction that I approached it from because I came to these stories really out of the medieval period, Uh whereas most of the other people who look at these stories approach it from later in the Edo period, looking back to the antecedents of later Georgiou theater, whereas I'm looking at these stories as extensions of medieval
1: storytelling traditions and not really considering them in their later Edo period context. Right. So just to give the just to give the years for people not f- familiar with uh, Japanese periodization, late medieval here we're talking fifteenth uh, sixteenth century, and then yes, Edo, really
0: sixteenth century, sixteenth century. Yeah. century, and then Edo would be from sixteen hundred on.
1: Yeah, okay. Right. So um, now the book comprises um, an introduction and eight translations of Sekio and Kojo-Rudi works authored. Uh, during the seventeenth century, roughly between sixteen thirty one and sixteen seventy three uh, though, as you mentioned in the book, the stories that are retold in these works are of a uh, much earlier uh, provenance uh, Now, I should mention that the translations are incredibly r- uh, readable and engaging. Usually, when I read a book for an interview, I take co- co- uh, no, no no thank you um, i usually when I read a book for an interview, I take copious notes and um, you know so I go through it quite slowly. Uh, And these translations I found so um, engaging and I was so engrossed in them that I'd sort of, you know, read the whole thing through and then at the end realize I hadn't taken any notes and then I'd have to kind of go back and mark up the book and take notes. Um, And it also, uh, the book contains 53, 53 is what I counted, images of paintings and woodblock prints um, depicting various scenes from the stories. And these give the reader a better idea uh, as to the way in which Early modern readers might have experienced these stories, which would almost always have been with illustrations, I believe.
0: Um, Yes. You raised several. Oh, I haven't let you get to your question. No, 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 please. (laughs) Well, you've raised several interesting issues here. And one of them is the the question of authorship. And so there are eight works in the volume. Uh, All of them were published between, oh gosh, 1631. And then let's say, you know, we don't know exactly, but really up until the Kambun period, maybe 1660s. Um, But in terms of authorship, we don't really know when they were authored, because these are stories that are rooted back in the medieval past Mm. and that circulated orally. Um, In the 1620s and 1630s, they they seem to have been taken up and then uh, in state performances with puppets. Yeah. Um, but but authorship is hard to say, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, the publishing of the stories, we can pin those down pretty well.
1: Right. And I think in uh, the article that you haven't published yet, in which you sort of expand on um, this, you mentioned that it's better to view these stories as a, uh, not as a sort of static, clearly delimited work, but rather as a snapshot of one-point um, on the developmental timeline of these stories...
0: That's right. That's right. And Luke's for our listeners is, um, <laughs> Luke's mentioning an article that I sent to you, of course, um, recently by email. It's a, it's an extension of the work that I did in the introduction for Wondrous Brutal Fictions. It's an article I recently wrote called Staging Senseless Violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about the sort of the culture of the early Kojoruri theater, the mm-hmm. old Joji theater from and really the first 20 years of the genre, circa mm-hmm. 1600 to about 1620. That um, it's not published yet. But, but that's yeah. right. So I sort of view these works as, um, you know, they get people pinned down, in time, in particular, published or manuscript right. versions. But the stories themselves are sort of timeless. They go mm-hmm. back into the depths
1: of the medieval past.
0: Yeah. And they circulated in multiple versions and, and lots of, with lots of
1: differences among them. Yeah. So yeah. before getting into the content of the stories themselves, I was just wondering if you might explain um, some of the relevant, uh, the, the relevant uh, concepts or genres or traditions here. So specifically, uh, Sekkyo and uh, Kojo-Ruri.
0: Right. Well, they're really two fundamentally different genres, um, but they tend to overlap, and then the one got subsumed into the other. Sekyo became subsumed into Kojururi, or the Joruri Theater, we should say, in the, the early 18th century. So, so Sekyo, the first genre, it's written with characters that means explaining the sutras, mm-hmm. but really they're not about sutra explication. They're really not about doctrinal or philosophical Buddhism in any way, mm-hmm. um, but they're stories that circulated orally in the medieval period about Buddhism. Buddhas and bodhisattvas and really what I call celebrity buddhas and bodhisattvas are particular statues um, that were particularly revered for instance the statue of Kannon at Kiyomizu Temple in Kyoto mm. or uh, the statue of Kannon at Hasedera Temple uh outside of Nara in the Nara Valley, say. Um, And and so these stories circulated um, because there were cults of these particular statues. And, And there were itinerant storytellers known as Sekyoshi or simply as Sekyo. It's the same name as the genre. And these are the people who would go about telling these stories. We don't know a lot about how the stories were told in the early days. We have mm-hmm. some images of these Sekyoshi preaching um, that are painted, images of them painted in um, big paintings that show scenes in and around the capital of Kyoto. Um, often they stood under a large uh, umbrella in and then they would um, chant to small audiences uh, and try to raise money that way. Okay. Well, so this was, this is the Sekyo genre. Yeah. Uh, it was a, Oh, it was a religious storytelling genre. Um, until, well, I suppose it continued to be for for the for the duration that it existed. Mm-hmm. But it came to be taken up in the theaters, we think, by a particular chanter of Sekio by the name of uh, Osaka Yoshichiro, um, mm-hmm. who we think in the 1620s then started to adapt uh, puppets in the manner of the the incipient Jojuri Theater. Mm-hmm. He adapted puppets to his chanting performances and then began to uh, perform in dedicated venues in the capital. Yeah. Uh, so, so Sekyo in the early 17th century is a kind of a puppet theater. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, the kōjōruri Theater, Kojoruri is a term that simply means old Joruri. Uh, it's the early form of the Joruri Puppet Theater prior to Chikamatsu Monzaimon's Shusei Kage Kiyo from, gosh, sixteen 85? 85 thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> On the tip of my tongue. That's right. Uh and that theater, we think, emerged in the, the dry riverbed of the, the Kamo River in Kyoto right mm-hmm. in the 17th century. So, right around 1600, mm-hmm. shortly after the importation of the shamisen from Okinawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, A shamisen being? The shamisen being the uh, musical instrument. Three string. Three string. Okay. Exactly. Uh the early repertoire of joruri or kojoruri was largely derived from an earlier storytelling tradition, uh, kowaka or kowakamai. It's also known as kowaka bukyoku to refer to the actual pieces themselves. And these were tales of martial valor, stories of samurai, these mm-hmm. sorts of things. Uh, and these stories were then adapted um, to the puppet stage and taken up in early kōjōruri. So really, they're, they're f- two fairly distinct genres, mm-hmm. but that both employ puppets in the 17th century and then mm-hmm. become competing styles of puppet theater until yeah. finally the one Sekio gets subsumed into jōruri. It starts to take on more and more characteristics of that genre. Right. And it really dies out in the early 18th century. Okay, and but it then, was a, sorry. I'm sorry. I saying, but it was a good one. It yeah. was a,
1: a wonderful genre while it existed. Um, and then what? One last question about these genres, um, before getting into the stories themselves is what was the relationship between? I mean, you mentioned in your article that very little is known about the actual performances themselves, and some of the only things we do know is what we see in you know uh, visual, two dimensional visual depictions on folding screens and paintings. Um, right. But so we do, do we know anything more about the relationship between performance and text and specifically, for example, the, the, uh, the editions or the texts that you're translating for this book, these were produced as, uh, these scripts for these plays That's or, or, right. or, or just to read as, you know, short story, or just to be read as sort of yes. tales.
0: We don't know a lot about how the plays were actually performed themselves. We, yeah. we have some woodblock printed um, images, for instance, of actual performances. The, mm-hmm. These images would date, you know, really from the 1660s up till the 1680s or so mm-hmm. are going to be our earliest images. Prior to that, we have some images of theatrical productions in these large um, paintings of scenes in the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Um uh, the texts themselves that survive survive in what are known as shohon and, and it's mm-hmm. written with characters that really mean true text, sort of Tadashi-hon mm-hmm. they're the corrector, the true text and these mm-hmm. purport to be the, uh, the they purport to be woodblock printed editions of stage manuscripts the manuscripts of particular chanters used in chanting their tales and so particular shohon, particular texts are associated with particular chanters who themselves became celebrities in the 17th yeah. century
1: I see Um, Okay, so Yeah, so I was going to ask If it's something like analogous to the Brothers Grimm, but I guess it's not Really because they're associated with specific Performers
0: that's correct. Yeah, so, okay. It would be a different kind of thing. Really, if we're going to talk about um, The Brothers Grimm, it would be more analogous to Otogizoshi tales, um, yeah. short medieval fiction, but these genres overlap. So when we right. talk about short medieval fiction, Otogizoshi, the, the, the stories themselves overlap with the stories told in Sekkyo, and then we know that some Sekkyo plays were performed as kojo and vice versa. Yeah. And, uh, and really, these are all rooted in medieval Katarimono
1: mono oral traditions, and yeah. so it's, it's hard to sort these things out. So, Um, As I already mentioned, there are eight works uh, very beautifully translated in this uh, book. Um, So let's actually talk about the uh, specific uh, works, the pieces themselves. So the uh, first one I wanted to talk about was Karukaya.
0: Sure, and even before then, I might point out, so the, the eight works, six of them are really sekyo, and two of them are Ruri, although then again, it's hard to draw that line distinctly. And one of the things that I write about in the introduction, I try to, to put forward the idea that we consider these works, all of them on a continuum between what might be pure sekyo, which really mm-hmm. doesn't exist anymore, we can't access it, okay. and joruri or ruri the old joruri, which is sort of a different beast. Right. Um, and and so the, the central works of the volume, so say that the, the six Sekyo works are Sancho Dayu, Karukaya, Shintoku and Oguri. And those four works really comprise the heart of the old Sekyo style. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two other works though that were very important in Sekyo. It's Aigo no Waka, uh, and then the other one, in Sekyo it's known as Matsura Choja, although in my book I translate a version of that story called Sayo Hime. Mm. Uh, the Aigo Nawaka no story, the, the actual manuscript that I translated, it dates from a little bit later in the 17th century, at which point it's taken on the characteristics of Kojo Ruri. So it's divided mm. into six acts, for instance, whereas Sekyo is not divided into acts. So although originally it's a Sekyo piece, it's become more like Kojo Ruri in the version that I translated. And and I translated that one just because we don't have any other surviving, any um, older editions of that particular work, mm. uh, which is a shame. Yeah. Uh and there are two Kojo Rudi pieces in the work Amida no Munewari and uh, which I translated as Amida's ribbon breast and mm-hmm. gold hime which is named after the, the central protagonist a young woman by the name of go no hime mm-hmm. uh, this is tricky too. It's problematic to say they're purely Kojo-ruri because we know these works were performed as early as 1614 Mm -hmm. as Um, Kojo-ruri. However, we also know that Amida no Munewari was performed as Sekyo. Um, We have one particular, the the 1651 text of this is the one I translated, and it survives in two volumes rather than three. And based on that alone, scholars have decided that it's probably Kojo-ruri. But really, there's no way to say that it's the codejority version
1: and not the secio version yeah so the so cata- what, categories like, of genre are a little unclear and to- yeah
0: Exactly. You know, it's very difficult to separate them. Yeah. Um, and so what I did in this particular book, I combined the two genres in in one book then. So so the book is translations mostly of Sekio, but also Kojo-Ruri, and I sort of put them together. And I'm following in that the – gosh, there's an edition put out by Shinoda Junichi and, mm-hmm. and Sakaguchi Hiroyuki and the um, Iwanami-published uh, Shin-Nihon-Koten Bungaku Taike series um, called Kojo-Ruri Sekyo shu So oh. So – Shinoda and Sakaguchi sort of combined stories from Kojuri and Sekio into a single volume and, and I was very much influenced by that yeah. in doing
1: it here. I see, I see. Yeah.
0: Um
1: so 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 uh, going into the first story, well it's not the first story in the book, but the first yeah. story we're gonna talk about, uh Karukaya. Um do you I mean you sh- shall I maybe give a very like a one minute summary of it? Sure, or okay. I could. I'd okay. be happy yeah. to, no, go to for talk it. about
0: it. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's a lovely story. It's not as um, brutal as some of the other stories. And the mm-hmm. title of the book, of course, is "Wondrous Brutal Fictions," and and the mm-hmm. stories are wondrous insofar as they they pertain to miracles, mm-hmm. um, sort of um, wondrous deeds of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. But but these are tough works. They are they're brutal. Uh, they're they're full of sort of hideous things that happen to people who don't deserve them. Um, children are frequently brutalized in these stories. They're abandoned, they're mistreated, they're starved, mm-hmm. uh, they're murdered in some cases, in other cases they're tortured, they're branded. Awful things happen to them. Um, mm-hmm. They're very brutal. Kadokai is a, a very sad story. It's not as brutal as some of the other works like, say, Sancho Dayu or mm-hmm. Shintokumaru, these sorts of works, but it's um, it's a very moving one. Uh, I teach all of these works in a class that I teach called Monsters, Monkeys and mayhem uh, at the <laughs> University of Colorado. I went for the alliteration. You can yeah, see it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my students love it. You know, it's really very sad yeah. and it's, it's very moving for many of them. Uh, so Kadokaya is the story about a man named Shige Uji. He's a, a wealthy lord in Kyushu. Uh, this is set back in the distant past, a time unspecified as far as I remember. And he's at a party one day when a cluster of unopened cherry blossoms, some some buds from the cherry tree, fall into his sake cup at the party. And he looks at them and he realizes that life is fleeting. He looks at these buds and he thinks, you know – we think that blossoms fall, they scatter when they've opened, when they've reached maturity. But he thinks, but that's not always the case. And this is the way life can be, is that you can fall when you're still just a bud a Tsubomi. Uh, and and this is how things are. Life is fleeting, and we have to seize the moment. And at that point, he announces to his retainers there, he's a very powerful, important man. And he says, excuse me, you all, but I've decided, I've just had a religious awakening. And I'm going to be, excuse me, I'm going to leave here and become a monk. And he gives up his uh, wife, uh, his young daughter, who I think is Three years old at this point, his wife is pregnant, and he says, "I'm sorry, I have to leave you. I'm, I've had this um, awakening, and I'm going to go off and become a monk." Um, so he does. So he travels to the capital. He goes to see Honen over his wife's protests. There's this very interesting characterization. The plot, the plot's really very interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he, he runs off to the capital. He meets Honen, uh, and he makes ho- ho-
1: oh, up. Uh, Honen being a famous Pure Land monk.
0: That's right. Yes, thank you. Yes, so Honen being the founder of the Pure Land School of Buddhism, or what would later come to be called the Pure Land School of Buddhism. Uh, so he meets Honen, and Honen at first refuses to ordain him to make him a monk. Uh, but Shigi Uji swears, and we learn later, later, he says that he lied to Honen. He told Honen that he didn't have a, a wife or child, when in fact, he already had a daughter, and his wife was pregnant with what is going to be his son, then, Ishidomaru, will be the boy's name. Uh, but, but, Okay, so Shige Uji lies, uh, but then at the same time he says, but if my family should ever come, if I were to have a family, if they mm-hmm. should ever come to find me, I will refuse to meet with them or to acknowledge them. And if I do acknowledge them, then may we all fall into hell mm-hmm. as a result. And he makes this very extreme vow. And Honen is satisfied and he takes him in and he makes him a monk. Uh, time passes. Several years go by. Uh, the wife gives birth to a son, Ishidomaru, who um, grows older and then he becomes curious about his father. And at one Point the boy decides that he wants to go in search of his lost father. So the mother and the son Ishido Maru, they leave the daughter Chiyotsuru, behind uh, and they go off in search of the father. Meanwhile, the father Shigiuji who's now become uh, a person by the name of Karukaya Karukaya Doshin, the Karukaya novice, he has a dream that his wife and child are coming to find him, and so he flees. He runs away to Mount Koya, from which women are forbidden; they cannot climb the mountain. Uh, so the wife and and son come to the capital. They meet with Honen. Honen says, ah, he was here, but now Honen helps them. He says, but he's run off to Mount Koya, see if you could find him. And so they go to find him. And when they get there, the, the wife is prohibited from climbing the mountain, but the son climbs up the mountain. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really very sad. And he climbs up the mountain and he finds his father. He meets him, but the father won't tell him who he is. Mm-hmm. And when the son confronts him and says, you know, you seem to know something about my father, then Karokai says, yes, in fact, I do know your father. He's dead. And he lies to him and he him. T- takes him to see the grave and the son weeps bitterly. Um, but the son, there's nothing that he can do. He goes back down the mountain. And we, when he returns, his mother has died at the inn where she was waiting for him. And he's of course, terribly distraught. Um, poor Karakaya on the mountain is, is absolutely traumatized by this meeting with the son that he had never met before, because he knows perfectly well who the boy is. Anyway, he goes back up the mountain. Uh, the boy goes back up the mountain to, to find his father who he doesn't know is his father to help him then bury his mother, He's thinking he's just asking a priest. Mm The father comes down, helps to cremate the wife. Then the boy goes back to see his sister uh, in Kyushu. Just as he arrives, he hears uh, what sounds to him like a celebration. In fact, it's a funeral for his sister who has died while he's away. And the boy, thinking now that he's lost his father, lost his mother, and lost his sister, goes back to find this kind priest that he met on the mountain who's actually his father. And the father still can't admit who he is. And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's very mm-hmm. sad. Um, my summary doesn't do it justice here.
1: but Yeah. Um, and then... Um... And, and then I should also I, I, I should also mention that the um the stories presented in the beginning as being an origin story for the uh parent and child Jizo Bodhisattva uh icons yeah. at the Zenkoji temple. Um,
0: yeah. It's, it is. It it's the story set up as a frame and this is typical of the Sekyo genre as a yeah. whole. Stories are stories of the, the human origins of celebrity Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Yeah. Uh, in this sense, in the, the Kartokaya story ends up being the story of the parent and son, the father and son, Jizo, that's enshrined at Zenkoji Temple. Uh, and and so this ends up being the story of the two of them. And the, and the boy goes back to the mountain where he lives with his father for a while. Uh, he takes his, not knowing still that that his father is his father, uh, this person becomes his mentor on the mountain until mm-hmm. the father decides he has to leave. He can't be with the son anymore because people are growing suspicious. They look yeah. alike. right. Uh, and he leaves. But, but eventually they're reborn and they attain Buddhahood. And in the Pure Land, they're all reunited the father and the mm-hmm. wife, daughter and the brother. And in particular, the father and the son become the parent and child, Jesus, Bodhisattva. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I. The, the, the story, what I find so interesting. Oh, yes, go ahead. No, no, please.
0: Uh, I was going to say what I, what I find so interesting about the story though is it, it's a it's a it 's a type of tale that got told in the medieval period in various different forms, and so the yeah. Kartokaya story is one particular form of this, but there are other versions of the story that are mm-hmm. that are that are sadder still mm-hmm. um, there the most famous one would probably be in Saigyo Monogatari. It's a medieval tale of the poet, the great poet from the Shinko Saigyo. But likewise, he has a, a wife and a four-year-old, or maybe, she, yes, I guess she's four years old in that case, four-year-old daughter, whom he abandons to become a monk. And there's a, there's a very sad scene where he he goes back to, to tell them that he's leaving, and the daughter comes up and clings to her father, and he kicks out at her, he kicks her off the veranda. And this is a way of trying to... to Break this tie mm-hmm. that he has um, with the right. with his former life, a secular. Yeah. But it's really very sad from the point of view of the daughter, yeah. or in from the son Ishido
1: Maru. Yeah. Um, this story reminded me to a certain extent of the uh, Vesantara Jataka, so popular mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia. Uh, n- in many ways, they're very different, but um, I mean, both this. And uh, the Vesantara Jataka addressed this sort of tension between familial bonds and religious aspirations. And this, in the story of Kadukaya, uh, is not only uh, Kadukaya's religious aspirations, but specifically this vow that he's made not to, um, you know, sort of reveal his identity to his family right. should they come looking for him. Um and well, I-
0: this is at the heart of the story, and it's so interesting. It's the moral dilemma, and and mm. what I find so interesting about this is that in making this vow or, or, or being torn in this way, the story on the one hand promotes monasticism. It says, mm. this is a good thing. It's, it's right. when someone has a spiritual awakening, one should do this. It's important to leave one's family behind, to go on and pursue the religious path. But then the story itself, it undercuts this. Um, and, and the narrators, we have different versions of the story, and narrators are divided on this, and there are some narrators who side with the boy who feel sorry for Ishidomaru when the mm-hmm. father, Karukaya turns him away. And there's another narrator in another version of the story who says, oh, but the poor father. And, and this really, this is a great moral conflict that mm-hmm. comes up in the story, this moral dilemma. Is this yeah. right? Is this what he should be doing? And, and when the father learns that his daughter has died in addition to his wife, then he, he cries out and he says, you know, here I was. I thought I was following the monastic path. And, and in fact, I've been murdering people because mm-hmm. it's, it's directly a result of him leaving his
1: family, that, that, that everything just goes right. to the wayside. Right. It's really right. very sad. Well, I found that very interesting that even in the traditional commentaries, you have these conflicting views, one where it's saying, you know, he, well, he should have revealed his identity, and the other saying, well, no, he should have Um, you know it was right for him to stick to the sort of monastic path and the um, because my sense is at least in Southeast Asia that's there's not that same uh, difference of opinion Um, but of course but in this story the one thing um, at the end they're all uh, all the family members are reborn in Amida's Pure Land and reunited so it does it it sort of um, (laughs) it's a happy ending yeah it it does present this moral (laughs) dilemma but at the end it sort of Sort of, um, you know, provides a, uh, resolution of sorts.
0: That's right. Well, this is really problematic, and I bring this up with my students. You know, what what do you do in this? And this is a real world concern. What do you do when this kind of thing happens? Um, right. My wife told me a story. My wife is Japanese, and she had a college friend, and who let's see, they went to a Catholic uh, school, Catholic Catholic college in Tokyo. But her friend was not particularly religious. She was Catholic. Uh, she went to church, but but not particularly devout. Uh, she got married to someone who was not a Catholic. He was just a regular Japanese guy. Uh, she took him to church. They had children. They had three kids. And then he got really into going to church. And one day he, he said to her, he said, you know, I love you. And this is great that we have these three kids. But I, I feel that I'm being called by the Lord. And I need to leave you. And I need to – and he wanted to become a Catholic priest. Mm. So what do you do in this case? You know, right, So right. sure, this may be admirable that he had this religious awakening. But yeah. he – Confronted his wife and said, this is it. I'm going to leave you destitute with three yeah. small children and follow the, the religious way. And this is exactly what Kadokaya does. And this kind of thing mm-hmm. happens today. Yeah, and it's yeah. really, you know, to get back to medieval fiction it's much more devastating. In some Well, it's hard to be more devastating than Karakaya, but for instance, there's a there's a wonderful picture scroll in the Harvard Art Museum called Tameo no Soshi, and it's a related tale like this. Um, and it, it's really very sad. And in this case, uh, there's a very wealthy man named Tameo, and he leaves his wife and his two small children behind to become a monk, uh, and, and he goes off to, to practice monasticism. He mm-hmm. practices Buddhism. But he grows curious about what's happened to his family in the time that he's left. And while he's gone, the family have been left without a provider. They become destitute. Uh, And he goes back to to just to see, to check on them from a distance, not to say who he is, but just to to see what's happening. And he goes back and he talks to an innkeeper who says, oh yeah, I remember that guy, Tommy. Oh yeah, he left. Nobody knew where he went. Um, His wife died. She died of grief. Cried herself to death. This so is the man thinks. Wow, that's terrible. So he finds out where his kids are living, and he goes to see them, and he spies on them from a distance, and he and he sees them preparing something. The daughter cuts off her hair. He watches her do this. He doesn't know why. And they have a very nice box. She places her hair in the box, and the next day he follows them, and the two children go to a temple where they go to a, a priest, and they offer up the the hand box with the daughter's hair, which has value in this period, and they offer the the box to the priest. And they say, this is our, our sole valuable pre- possession. Please take this and use this. Take this as our payment for prayers for our dead father and mother. Please pray for them. And the father's watching this from a distance. He says, wow, this is really, how could this be? It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And he continues to follow them from a distance. And the children proceed on. And they come to a bridge. And they climb on top of the bridge. And the daughter turns to the Son the little girl turns to the little boy and she says she says well that's it we have nothing anymore we've given away our last possession let's go on and see mom and dad and the boy says yes great let's do it and they jump in the river and drown wow and the man comes across the bodies then, so the father finds them, he follows mm-hmm. them, he comes to the bridge, there's a big crowd, and he cries on the bodies, and, and this is this terrible thing that happens, but he ends up cremating his children then, mm-hmm. and uh, and then purple clouds appear in the sky, which means they've been reborn in Amidas Pure Land, yeah. and it's wonderful, it's a happy ending, right? And, yeah. and in, in some ways, his, his cares are washed away uh-huh. in the river, Yeah. His delusion is extinguished, we could say, in the death of the children. But in this story, it was it was too much for some later storytellers. There are other versions of the story where people couldn't seem to handle this, and we know that particular tale was employed in Tendai preaching, preaching of the Tendai Mm -hmm. school, um, because it's included. A version of it's included in a uh, a 16th century uh, Tendai Lotus Sutra commentary called the Jikidan Inenshu, Mm -hmm. in English, "Straight Talk on Causes and Conditions," and in that version of the story, the 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 father runs up the children are dead they've drowned um he he grabs them and clings to them and then because his devotion to his children is so great that then i believe it's condon steps in and saves their lives and yeah. they come back to life and they're all rejoined again happily right that right. it's as if the storyteller couldn't couldn't yeah. leave them dead right uh, and, and there are other versions too. You know, there's, um, gosh, in, in a version called Kuchiki Zakura. In that case, the children, then again, they go, they give their soul possession, then they travel to the river. They're standing on the bridge, and they're about to drown themselves. And in that version of the story, the father runs up and says, "No, no, stop! It's me, yeah. I'm your father." And they embrace, right. and it's a happy ending. But it's, but somehow those versions, I don't think, are as good as the oh. Tamio no Soshi version. <laughs> yeah, or yeah,
1: fight, you know, which is so devastating, but not quite as gripping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and uh, I'd like to, uh, in the interest of time, move on to the next story. I did want to ask one last thing, though, about this. So you have this sort of. just this line tagged on to the beginning of the story, or I don't know, tagged on, but just this one line saying, you know, ask me about the origin of the parent and child Jizo statue in such and such a temple, and I will tell you about this, um, you know, Lord Shige Uji, you know, a long time right, ago.
0: Right, that's be part should. of the narrative right. frame of the story. Right.
1: And, the and, yeah. and, and 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 at least uh, two of the eight have these sort of explicit frames and then I think five of the other six, either somewhere in the story, it's not the main point of the story, but they do explain the origin of this shrine or the origin of uh, that temple, like the Bato Kanon, the horse-headed Kanon shrine at the at the foot of Mount Fuji, for example, um, is explained in one of the stories. So are these things that... Um, are sort of – because they don't seem very central to the story at the same time. The story doesn't really seem about the – it's not really about the origin of the Jizo Bosat, uh, Bodhisattva statues. Right. So is this something that's sort of tagged on afterwards to give it some something of a, a Buddhist flavor? Or are these just sort of little things added into the story – um, that are well, of- I
0: really think these are central to the story. and these, oh, really? Get, these get back to the roots of Sekyo as this kind of um, religious or pseudo-religious storytelling genre um, where these stories are, they're really the stories of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. But, mm-hmm. but what happened over time, and we, we see this in some later later stories, for instance, in Aigo no Waka, we lose that frame at the beginning. The same with, mm-hmm. with Oguri, at least the version that I translated, yeah. where we lose this kind of framing device where the narrator says, ask me about the origins of such and such a deity, and I will tell you that this person came from. And then typically the story goes along, it tells about the human tribulations of the the particular being that was to become that Buddha or Bodhisattva, and then in the end it says and then as a result this person became that Buddha or Bodhisattva. And really what happened with time, and I, I think this is a, a product of um, a secularizing trend mm-hmm. in the Edo period, mm-hmm. is that this very pungent religious framing device tends to get lost. And yeah. so, for instance, in Aigo Waka at the very end of the story, we learn that the boy, the poor boy who has been tortured and then finally commits suicide, mm-hmm. Aigo No Waka, um, is in fact he's then, that that was the former, he was the former human incarnation of a, a particular Buddha or Bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. Same see. goes with Guri and his wife, Terute Nohime. Right. Um, really, Susan Matasoff has written quite a bit about this and her, her work mm-hmm. is really very interesting. It has been very influential on me, mm-hmm. um, and about Karukai in particular. She has a chapter, uh, about Karukai and the origins of the tale, uh, in a book edited by Barbara Roosh called, gosh, I have copy here, uh, Engendering Faith. Yeah. Um, Published by Michigan. And in which she argues, yeah, and then Matasoff argues that Karokai is rooted in the storytelling traditions of the Koya Hijiri, these itinerant storytelling monks or holy men of Mount Koya, mm-hmm. as well as uh, preachers who are affiliated with Zenkoji Temple in mm-hmm. uh, what's now Nagano Prefecture.
1: Right. So. Okay, well, thanks for that. That's. Um, sh- uh, I wanted to mo- move on to another story. Sure, which one? Um, Sayohime or Aigo Nawaka? Uh, okay.
0: Right. Both of those are, are really so good. Well maybe we could talk briefly about Sayohime. Sure. Um you know, these some of these stories, these are my students are so appalled by some of these really. Sayohime is a very sad story. Um about a young woman whose father dies while she's young, but she's very filial. She's a very good daughter, and she decides that that she needs to raise money to pay for a memorial service for her dead father. But but living with her mother, they have no money. Uh, She has no way to afford this. So she decides um, that she will sell herself into slavery as a means of raising money so that she can pay for a memorial service for her dead father. Uh, She tries to sell herself. Nobody's interested in (laughs) buying. It's It's a similar plot motif that we see in Amida's riven breast. And there's really some very dark humor in these stories. They're they're actually quite funny um, in many ways, but uh, but in a very bleak sort of way. Uh, But it turns out that she goes to Kasuga Shrine. She prays for help to be introduced to someone who might buy her. And it turns out that at the very same time in northern Japan, there's a a small town where there's a lake. and There's a giant serpent that lives in the lake. And every year, a young woman, a a young virgin is sacrificed to the snake, is fed to the snake. And that particular year, there's a, a local man by the name of Tayu, and it's his turn to feed a child to the snake. But poor Tayu and his wife only have one daughter. And the wife says, you know, we can't do this. We can't give our only child to the snake. And she says, "She says I have an idea. Why don't you go to the capital and buy an orphan girl? Bring her back and feed her to the snake instead. And Gonganotayu says, great idea. Why didn't I think of that? And he goes off to the capital. Anyway, due to the intervention of the Kasuga deity, Tayu is able to find Sayohime, he purchases her, uh, and over the protests of her mother then, who finds out only later what's happened, takes her back uh, to the north of Japan to feed her to the great snake. Um, things get really interesting when she's taken onto the lake uh, to be fed to the snake, but because it turns out that Sayohime has had a copy of the Lotus Sutra that her mother had given her from before. So while she's on the, the, the lake, awaiting to be fed to the snake Mm -hmm. she pulls out her copy of the lotus sutra to read the snake swims up and she addresses the snake and she says hey you snake i know you're going to eat me that's okay i'm doing this for the sake of my dead father uh but before you eat me i want you to listen to this and she proceeds to read the snake the 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 passage from the Devadatta chapter of the Lotus Sutra about the transformation of the dragon girl. And, and if you remember from that particular episode, it's a very famous episode um, pertaining to women and Buddhism, the plight of women in Buddhism, that the eight-year-old dragon girl in the Lotus Sutra uh, appears before the Buddha and uh, Shariputra, one of the disciples of the Buddha, uh, scoffs at her and says, how, as a, as a female, how could you possibly attain enlightenment? And in that case, she she says, "She well, she first presents a jewel to the Buddha who is there, and she says, did you to see how I presented this jewel to the Buddha? And Shariputra says, yes, I saw it. And she says, well, watch, just as easily will I attain Buddhahood. And she does before him. So Sayohime, out on this uh, ceremonial dais where she's to be fed to the great snake, addresses the snake, says, you listen to this. She says, I'm going to attain enlightenment, and you are too. And, uh, and Sayohime reads this passage to the great snake. Then she lifts up the Devadatta chapter of the Lotus Sutra, and she bashes the snake in the head physically, with the Lotus Sutra. And the snake is suddenly transformed by this, uh, becoming a a young girl herself and talks about how uh, because of her longstanding grudge, yourself was a sacrifice 999 years before. She's been devouring maidens in this lake ever since. Um, And in a very interesting twist, and this isn't my idea, I didn't write about this in the introduction. I I have a graduate student at Colorado named Kelly Doer. She's uh, since graduated, but in a paper that she wrote, she came up with a great uh, insight and, and she, she said, well, of course, in the Lotus Sutra, uh, the, the dragon girl is transformed. But before she does so, she presents the Buddha with a jewel and then becomes a Buddha. Well, in the Sayohime story, first Sayohime is cast in the, the role of Shariputra, because mm-hmm. as she reads the passage from the Lotus Sutra, she reads the line that Sar- Shariputra said to the Dragon Girl says, as a woman, how might you attain enlightenment? And just before Sayohime bashes the snake on the head, she says that. She says, as a woman, how might you attain enlightenment? Bashes her on the head. The woman is transformed, or the, the snake is transformed into a woman. But then the woman then presents Sayohime with a wish-fulfilling jewel mm-hmm. that uh, – that dragons are said to possess uh much in the way that then the dragon girl presented the jewel to the buddha and as my student kelly then suggested that this puts sayohime in the position of being the buddha herself Mm. who then has sort of granted enlightenment and salvation then to this serpent Uh, and sayohime manages to be reconnected then with her mother uh, who's one of my favorite characters in all of these works uh who meanwhile has cried herself blind? Um, she's now a blind beggar, and with uh, the aid of the wish fulfilling. Why well, shouldn't give this all away? I want
1: people to read this. Well, no, I mean I don't think we're going to get through all way. And so, and also, I mean, you know, this is just a this is the cliff notes, right? <laughs> um, <I don't... laughs> okay. Well, let's. Um, I, let's... I, sorry, there are a few things I want to address in the story. Unless you were, were you still sure? No, go ahead. Well, um, I mean, one of them, which is just um, uh, one of. Uh, one of the things that appears... Um, I mean, this story actually, in a certain way, isn't um, quite as gruesome either as some of the others. Um, yes. Doesn't have as much blood and guts, but uh, one of the things is when she's taken by the fellow from North uh, East Japan from the yeah, capital been back been North God. East Japan, we have this very long, what you call a, I think, a, 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 a Michiyuki, Michiyuki scene. Yeah. yeah. And so these scenes are, I think in every story we get these scenes that say, okay, you know, they went from place A to place B. And what do you think they saw as they passed? Well, first they, you know, went by uh, this particular rock and that particular shrine and those that particular waterfall. So um, I was just wondering, these... Um, what's the function of these within these stories? And would it ha- would the early modern or late medieval, um, well, I guess, sort of the 7th century Japanese audiences have been familiar with these places? Or is this a function of sort of um, creating associations between particular places and...
0: Right. Well, the michi- Michiyuki are, let's see, it's a traditional storytelling technique. And we see Michiyuki in all kinds of literature going back into earlier centuries. Um, you know, They show up in no plays. They show up in, in Otogi Zoshi Tales. And I think the way they, they function, sort of the purpose in Sekyo Puppet Theater and in Ruti Puppet Theater was to uh, allow – characters to travel mm-hmm. long distances um, narratively, because if you've got little puppets on a stage, how do you convey the impression of distance and of traveling? Mm-hmm. And, and so these Michiyuki are these long, very lyrical passages, with often with puns on, on the names of famous places, this sort of thing. And, it, and I believe these sort of allowed chanters a, a way of displaying their own dexterity, their own skills at chanting. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very typical, and they're, they're also very common. And what's interesting about this repertoire of stories in Sekyo is that the michiuki are often recycled from one story to the next, mm-hmm. as if uh, particular chanters had set repertoires of michiuki passages that they could plug into different yeah. stories at different times. Um,
1: yeah. Also, also in this story, uh, one of the themes in the story is um, is a. Uh, Slavery and um, and The sort of uh, trade in children Which is something yes. that appears in I th- Almost all of these Eight works if not all of them yes. um, And so That was and, and also the dragon girl um, The dragon when she turns Into a girl she explains that you know She was 999 years ago She was also sold into slavery and that's how she Ended up here uh, up in northeast Japan where she was uh, or in Michinoku Where she was um, Where she was drowned as a pillar um,
0: yeah, sacrifice. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, I was just wondering, because I think people uh, not familiar with, um, you know, pre-modern or early modern Japanese, um, you know, sort of eco- <laughs> economics, or we not familiar with pre-modern Japan. I mean, to what extent is this a reflection of um, reality? I mean, was there a large trait in children? You addressed this a bit in the introduction. Right.
0: Oh, it's a very interesting question, and it, and it's very hard to get an answer to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to do some research into this, into the history of s- the slave trade in Japan, and the problem is the sources. So, so I read various Japanese sources. Mm-hmm. There was a Saito, gosh, what's this? Uh, oh, I don't remember his first name, but yeah. um, who had written about this? But but the problem in these various sources that I looked at, they tend to draw on these source on these these literary sources for yeah. their date. On the slave trade, and I was trying to find data on the slave trade to make sense of these sources, and so um, there was a circularity there that I couldn't get out. We really have very little data on this, right? Uh, So, what extent this actually happened, we don't know.
1: Yeah, I guess you can't conflate frequency of appearance in literature with uh, frequency of actual practice. Um, That's right. right so,
0: yeah, especially because we have these sorts of stories going back to other, say, Chinese sources, for instance, and so it could just be a, a literary trope.
1: But we we just don't know. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. Well, in any case, the the literary sources, uh, such as the ones you translate here, certainly don't seem to suggest it as anything amoral necessarily. I mean, it's just sort of a fact of life, right. Yeah.
0: Right. And, you know, Which and it happens is, in the other and, of course, Amida's riven breast, this is a central theme. There are two small children who have lost their father yeah. uh, and mother, their mother and father. Their father decides uh, that he's going to devote his life to committing evil acts because mm-hmm. he has a special magical tree that promises him eternal youth. And being a, um, a sort of a, a thinking Buddhist man, he reasons that, that since he and his wife can remain alive until the advent of the future Buddha, Maitreya, they can attain enlightenment very easily. When Maitreya appears on the mm-hmm. earth, therefore, there um, there's no point in doing good deeds until that time. So they, yeah. they revel in their own wickedness until Shakyamuni becomes so outraged and incensed <laughs> at what he's doing that he sends his uh, particular demon retainers that Shakyamuni apparently has to, he says, go out and kill that man and his wife. And and he says also make them suffer when you do it for what they've done. So the children are left orphaned and alone. They decide to sell themselves into slavery again to raise money to conduct memorial rites for their uh, dead and wicked parents uh and the the little girl decides to sell herself to a man who needs to extract her liver he needs her living mm-hmm. liver to feed to his son who's been cursed with a terrible disease it's mm-hmm. the only way to save him uh and she does so but she's really saved in the end by amida and so it's a it's a very happy sort of story though also
1: yeah um well yeah I mean we I mean, we we should continue on with Amida no, Mune no. is protected. I mean I should mention that Amida's actually in the sto- in at least in the version you translate Amida's the actually the one who directs the uh children to the wealthy man.
0: That's right. <laughs> they want to sell themselves into slavery but yeah. the part of the humor of the story is that no one wants to buy them so, yeah. you know, they can't find a buyer but they pray to Amida to help them find someone to buy them and so he does and so he yeah. connects the man who 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 agrees to buy them, but he explains to them and unlike Sayohime, poor Sayohime right. doesn't know in advance that she's to be fed to a giant snake, but we know that she was asking for it because she did uh, say previously that that even if she were to be uh, eaten by a hawk or a bear or something like that she would still sell herself for the sake of her dead father, uh, and in fact she's to be eaten by a snake. Well, the little girl in Amida no Munewari uh, is told up front that the, the man and his wife say, well, this is the situation we would like to buy you, and the reason is because we need to feed your raw living liver to our son. And if you would agree to this, we would be amenable. And she thinks about it, and she says, that would be fine, um, but I'd like to be paid in advance, um, which is reasonable. And she <laughs> uses that money, of course, to construct an Amida Hall then for her dead parents. Uh, but but in the end, um, well, I don't want to ruin the story for readers. Yeah, but, okay. But, so yeah, let not. But, but there's a, there's a miraculous... Uh, saving here. Yeah, the story's very interesting. We don't know the origins of this either, and I, a couple of years ago when I was working on this, I had a conversation with Micah Auerbach at the mm-hmm. University of Michigan, and he had been working on a Kojururi story of um, Shakyamuni, Shaka no Honji, the origins of Shakyamuni, and he brought up some work that Watsuji Tetsuro had done, or really speculation, which I hadn't been aware of, but it's very interesting, and apparently uh, Watsuji had speculated that Amida no Munewari was based in storytelling of the Jesuits in the 16th century, Because it it doesn't fit the conventions of what we think of as Buddhist storytelling. You have an an angry and a vindictive god, Shakyamuni, who Mm. when when he feels affronted by uh, the two children's parents, he he not only has them murdered, but he has, I think it's molten copper poured down their throats in a very gruesome, painful way he has dispatched. And then at the end, Amida steps in. There's, a, there's actually a physical sacrifice. Amida sacrifices himself yeah. physically to huh. save the children. And it, and, it, and it sounds like something that Jesus might do. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting ar- argument. We, we have no way of saying whether that's true or yeah. not, because we don't have records. But I'm inclined to think that maybe that it doesn't hold water. And, and that would be based on some of the other stories. Because we yeah. we also have vindictive images of Kannon and various other stories. In Shintoku Maru, right yeah but uh, unknown curses, the poor boy Shintokomaro causes his eyes to explode and his body to burst out in festering sores and um and and then, really, the vindictiveness comes through when the – Shintokumaru is born as a result of the prayers of his, his parents, but when his mother later on makes fun of Konon and calls him a liar. She yeah. says even, even the famous Konon of Kiyomiza Temple is a liar, and it makes him so mad that he sends out these special retainers he has to, to go out and, and murder the woman. Um, and we see that again in uh, Aigo no Waka. the poor little boy, Aigo no Waka's mother, uh, ends up – the Hasedera Konon, the statue of Konon at Hasedera Temple – that sends out his special retainers to have her murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, there's, there's nothing particularly unusual about this in Amida no Yeah, And sacrifice is common in all these stories.
1: Now, w- uh, w- one thing in Amida no Muneiwari that I wanted to ask about is, uh, in a lot of these stories, a pair of siblings appears, um, a, brother and a, cur- a brother and a sister, and usually the sister is older and is generally the braver, the wiser of the two. And is usually the one who, um, usually is the one who sacrifices herself and shows greater fortitude than the brother.
0: Oh, um, absolutely. You know, one of the remarkable things about Sekyo is the strength of these female characters. mm -hmm. And this is an idea that I think I first got from Susan Matisoff really it was through reading her work that I got to know about this genre um, in general and became acquainted with these stories. Um, And, it's very interesting in Sekio that we we get very strong female characters, and we don't see that so much in other in, in Otogizoshi. Let's other medieval storytelling genres. But in Sekio, we have these many very strong female characters. And in, in, for instance, in Sancho Dayu, so again, it's it's the little girl, uh, Anjunohime, who's the strong one. And her brother, Zushiomaru, he's, he's really kind of a wimp. Mm. Uh, that is until his sister is murdered. She's tortured to death while she uh, tries to, they're captors, because those two children have been kidnapped and sold into slavery. And uh, and the brother, Zushiomaru, escapes with the sister Anjunohime's help, and the captors torture her to death, trying to find out where Zushiomaru has gone. Um, but um, after Anjunohime dies, Zushiomaru sort of steps up and becomes a a stronger sort of character. Mm -hmm. But we we get these characters, and someone like Sayohime, her father, before he dies, he laments that his only child is a girl he says he says well i don't have i have no heir what a waste that my only child is is a girl and he says to his wife you have to find me an heir and she says well what can i do how can i help you being only a woman myself but then you have this character sayohime who then is this incredibly strong woman who takes these um we might say misguided steps but but no one can say that she's not an incredibly strong person. And I would even say her mother is very strong, too. That mm. She has kind of a, a showdown with uh, Gonga no Tayu when he comes to claim mm-hmm. sayo to take her away. And, uh, and if she isn't a tenacious person, I don't know who. <laughs> um, you know, and Oguri, too, Terute no Hime, an incredibly strong woman. Yeah. Uh, these great female characters.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, would you say, because on the other hand, there's a lot of depiction of, you know, evil stepmothers and, you know, and, uh, not just stepmothers. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, if we're
0: going to say evil stepmothers, we've got to get Aigo Nwaka, no really. Okay. So,
1: so one here. of my favorite stories. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let, it, let's just yeah. cover Aigo no Waka, And then I just want to ask you a few questions about, uh, translation okay. quickly. But, um, so what, so please, Aigo Nwaka. No
0: yeah, Aigo Nwaka no is, is a really disturbing story. It's, it's um. Oh gosh! I, you know, it's the kind of story that I—I I don't know. I wouldn't have been able to think of these things. I mean, this is—I don't know how someone came up with all of this. That it's, it can be so outlandish. And the premise of the story is that there's there's a. Well, really, to understand the story, we have to start at the beginning, in the first act. And again, Aigo no Waka is divided into acts in the, the manner of the Kojojuri Theater, because the, the only text we have of this is a fairly late text from, you know, I, I can't remember exactly I've offhand, but I'm going to say 1660s, when this would be from. Um, but uh, in, in this particular story, the beginning, the first act, so there, there's a, a man known as the, gosh, he's the Chamberlain. Oh, where are my notes here? Second Avenue Chamberlain? That's right. Thank you. It's the 2nd Avenue Chamberlain Kiyohita. And he, he's a favorite at the palace, and he's extremely wealthy. And one day at the palace, the emperor decides to put on a contest of treasures, of material objects. And Kiyohita has a lot of stuff, and he's very proud of his objects. He has a Chinese saddle in particular, and a particular sword, a yaiba sword. And at the contest of treasures, the emperor declares that indeed Kiyohita has the best stuff. His, his material objects are the best. And Kiyohita seems to be feuding with a person known as the Sixth Avenue Lord. And as Kiyohita's is on his way out, he puts down the Sixth Avenue Lord and says, ha, you worthless man, you have nothing. You don't own any good stuff like I do. The Sixth Avenue Lord is incensed. He wants to go and kill Kiyohiro and his family, but instead his son persuades him to have the emperor put on a contest of children. And so he does. So the emperor says, let's have a contest of children to see who has the best kids. Uh, The Sixth Avenue Lord has five fine strapping young sons which he brings to the contest poor Kiyohita the 2nd Avenue Chamberlain has none he has no children at all he's utterly humiliated uh, and he, he goes back and, and we think that he would learn his lesson here That and this is the central lesson of the story I think is that is that children are more important than objects we should value our children more than our stuff but he doesn't ultimately he goes back to his wife and he says we have no children it's a terrible thing and she says well we should simply pray for a child and so they do they go to see the condo of has they did a temple, uh, and they are eventually granted a child. Well, when the child is 13 years old, his mother dies. The father remarries, uh, and a, a woman, she's the daughter of the 8th Avenue Lord, I believe. We have these different avenues associated mm-hmm. with these people that uh, and she comes in, and she happens to see her stepson one day when he's outdoors playing with his pet monkey. Uh, and she sees him, and it's love at first glance. She falls desperately in love with her 13-year-old stepson, and she has her maids, Kisayo, send him love letters. Uh, the boy receives these letters. He's absolutely appalled at this pseudo-incestuous uh, advance that's made to him by his stepmother, and he says that that's that's absurd. I'll never entertain such a thought. Uh, the the stepmother panics. She thinks that if he tells his father, then that she will be put to death, uh, and so she decides to slander the child and she frames him. She she has a servant take the the all important Chinese saddle and yai ba sword and pretend to be selling it in the capital. Uh, the father finds out about this. He. He inquires what's going on, and the person who is selling it says, oh, I'm doing this under the command of Aigo Nawaka, little Aigo, uh, who says he needs money. The father is incensed. He beats his son senseless. He has him hung from a tree by the neck and by the hands. Uh, The son's dying. Meanwhile, his mother, who's in the other world, she's she's died and gone to the other world. She's in the court of King Emma, the king and judge of the dead. She pleads with Emma, please let me go back and see my son. Uh, to help him now. He's strung up from a tree and he's going to die. Uh, Emma says, fine, that's a good idea, except that you need to incorporate a body in order to do this. and Unfortunately, no one's died recently. However, there's the, the carcass, the body of a weasel that had died three days before, a three-day dead weasel. and He says, if you'd like to inhabit that body, fine, you can go. So She does. She goes back. She chews through the knots. She saves her son, uh, but he has to escape. He has to run away into the mountains. He's, he's beaten again, this time at the hands of some, some monks at his uncle's temple, Uh, and finally he comes to a a pool uh, in the the mountains where he decides to kill himself. Uh, Before he does so, he he cuts his finger open and he writes in blood on the inside of his robe. Uh, He writes about what had happened to him and how he was maliciously framed by his stepmother. He leaves the robe there and he jumps to his death. Uh, Meanwhile, the boy then uh, later is discovered, the robe is found, the father reads it, he realizes what's happened, and he's terribly distraught by this. And and so he has his new wife, he realizes what she's done, he has her rolled up in a mat and drowned. What's crucial to understand here that maybe not everyone knows is that in medieval Japan, all waterways were understood to be connected. Uh, They're sort of like the flu network in in Harry Potter, that if if, if you're a dragon or a giant snake, you can go into one area of water and come up in any other pool of water anywhere uh, because they're all connected underneath. Um, So meanwhile, the stepmother has died. The boy is dead. He's floating in the pool of water. The father goes to retrieve his son's body at the pool when the body mysteriously disappears very strange and the the father has his brother the boy's uncle then conduct an esoteric rite to bring the body back and then finally a giant snake comes up through the pole with the body on its head and the snake says i am in fact the stepmother Mm. and i finally have um, been able to fulfill my desire with the boy and now i'll give you back his body uh and it's really very disturbing. It's necrophiliac, of course, and right. the boy is dead. Um, this woman who then becomes embodied in this great phallic um, creature that then has its way with the dead body, returns the body, and the father is so disturbed by this that he commits suicide in the pool, so does the priest, so does everyone there, and, and mm-hmm. everyone dies. Um, it's, a, it's a great story. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so... Oh. Wait, I've got to get back to the most important point, though. So this is this gets back to the first act, though, the the, the contest between objects, the treasures, yeah. and the contest of children. And then finally, this gets back to the central point, is that the father, he didn't get it. He valued his mm-hmm. saddle and his sword more than his son. And yeah. as a result, it all ends in tragedy. But the boy, in fact, is then reborn as a deity. Uh, so it's it's a mono, a tale of origins of deities.
1: Yeah. So, 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 so you take the central message of this uh, this particular work to be uh, the importance of children over things, or
0: th- yeah, so or it, family
1: bonds, or it's. I said, exactly. but
0: all of these stories, the messages can be very muddled. And uh-huh. and for instance, it's very interesting to consider them from from a Buddhist perspective. You know, what is the religious message of these stories? And yeah. and there's really no doctrinal Buddhism here. There's no philosophical Buddhism. All that goes out the window. But we do yeah. hear about the workings of karma. Right. And. And we hear a lot about uh, prayer it's It's very important to be devoted to particular buddhas and Bodhisattvas mm-hmm. because they will help you or curse you mm-hmm. or do you if you the Kymizakannon explains in Shinto Shintokomarou goes to him finally says, "Why did you do this to me?" And he says, "Hey, you know don't blame me someone your stepmother asked me to curse you, and that 's what I do i 'm in the business of granting requests, yeah, and that 's yeah. just how it is and, and so um, these stories are all about the veneration of particular images in particular places. Mm
1: -hmm. And one thing I also noticed with uh, Aigo Nawaka, I think this is where... um, I think this is where the Rokujo Lord, the Sixth Avenue Lord, kind of waits to ambush uh, the second... Kiyohira at one point. And, um, you know, there are a few elements in these stories that seem like... Not that they didn't fit, but that that they were just uh, superfluous or extraneous. And so... Um, it, and so I don't know. I was going to ask. Does that tell what us? do we do with
0: these exactly? Yeah. You know, this is where do these come from? And that's a very interesting scene. I think that's in the second act of I Go no Waka And the way that I would explain that is it's the it's the Influence of kojo creeping into the text. That there's a, an impending a battle scene where you get the, sort of the the forces of the Sixth Avenue lord on the one mm-hmm. hand who are going to ambush Kiyohira. And there's going to be a big fight scene. And then there's a monk who steps in and stops it. Mm-hmm. But these kinds of sort of grand battle scenes um are, are very typical of the Kojo theater, particularly when we get into oh really the sixteen sixties or sixteen fifties, sixteen sixties. And then we start having sort of flying heads on the stage and this sort of thing. And and it's very interesting to see that creeping into Sekyo. Yeah. Whereas that might not have been there originally.
1: I see. You know. So um we're getting um in- Interest of time, I want to uh, move on. But just for listeners, you're, you, um, you'll have to pick up the book yourself and read through all eight yourself. And we haven't even—I think—I think the names of all of them came up. But certainly there are. Uh, well,
0: we just don't have time to talk about them all. You yeah, know, they're all interesting. I just go on and on here. But um, I might point out too that the book—it's going to be coming out in paperback in March, March oh, of two thousand and fifteen. Right. So that's makes a great stocking stuffer. Yeah. Um, you know, but the, but the stories are I, I dedicated the book to my daughter actually she's ten years old now but she hasn't read it yet she hasn't read any of the stories I started to read her Sancho Dayu and it was
1: finally too disturbing mm. um, that
0: she it's it, yeah. it's yeah. much that the, right. these are. Right.
1: These are rough tales. Yeah, But yeah. I, I, I mean, um, you know, having a I have a three year old daughter and read all the sort of you know glory sort of uh, like <laughs> don't all, these two. All, 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 not not these I didn't read but all the um, you know very uh, dark uh, versions of the you know Brothers Grimm things and also Hans yeah. Christian Andersen and so forth. But um, it made me think of the um, who was the Australian Berto. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, well, sorry, that's a bit of a tangent. Anyway, yeah. I wanted to um, ask you about translation before we go. Um, just, I believe you've published prior to this at least at least six translations of individual works uh, prior to the current the book we're talking about right now. Um, right. All of them in edited volumes or journals. Now, I wanted to ask two things about translation. The first thing is about the process itself. Uh, I mean, even the nuts and bolts of it. Um, Right. So as I was mentioning before we uh, started the interview that, you know, usually when we translate, we do it by ourselves. And I imagine that we all have our own idiosyncratic ways of doing it, favorite resources and ways of going about it. So I was just wondering if you could um, describe what a day in the life of translating Keller looks like, or whether you sort of developed a particular approach I mean, it's, it's a rather uh, broad question, but...
0: Yeah, and, and tra- translating is really difficult and, um, and tedious, and I find that it... it um Gosh, it's I to drive myself crazy doing it. When I when I work on text you um in particular these texts Sekyo, we've got many different manuscripts that survive, different woodblock printed texts and different manuscripts. And so not only is a person faced with choosing which stories to translate, but then the question is which versions of which stories. And and mm. this is true for a lot of the work I do, not just um Sekyo and kojo but but many of the Otogizoshi I've translated also survive in many multiple versions. Mm-hmm. Um and so Typically, if I find a story, really, when I find stories, they, they kind of get under my skin. I, I find a story and then I find that I can't get it out of my head because I'll, I'll read it in the original. Many of these things I, I've assigned for seminars that I teach at the university, so I read them with my graduate students or maybe I read them on my own but um, but I find these stories and I'm so intrigued by them, and I go, wow I mean these are they're so interesting and again I've always enjoyed reading I've always enjoyed stories, but I, I feel like I, um, I get captivated by these things, and I feel like I need to get it out there so that other people can see this and see what's so interesting about these things and experience them. Uh, but so when I when I choose a text, a particular story to translate, then I often end up reading through multiple versions simultaneously. Mm. Uh, and part of that is so that I can consult, because sometimes other texts will reveal things about the other versions of it that one might not expect. And so in wondrous, brutal fictions, I've got many notes where I talk about, for instance, I say in the such and such a version of the story published by Mm so-and-so, the narrator says this, and I try to include those things when they're interesting. Um, But, um, also, as a process, you know, it's a way of finding sort of what I consider sort of the best text. What I what I enjoy translating. Uh, in the case of Karokaya, I started out translating a, uh, a late 16th century uh, manuscript version of the story, which is really the oldest extant version of the story. It formerly belonged to Yokoyama Shigeru. Um It was in his his personal archive, the Akagi Bunko. Um, it, it's a it's a wonderful version. It's illustrated. But after I got a few pages into it, I'd been reading simultaneously that the wood block printed 1631 edition of the story and i finally decided after a few pages that i preferred the 1631 text now there was it was fuller there was a little bit more detail so i ended up scrapping the first few pages of translation and going back and then translating the 1631 text which is the version that i Mm use so okay so when i translate i i work with multiple versions often they're unannotated so so for me translation's a lot of um sort of desk work looking up things mm-hmm. constantly consulting the the Nihon Kokugo Daijiten the 20 volume dictionary set of the Japanese language uh, I use the uh, the Jidai-betsu Kokugo Daijiten constantly it's a it's a oh gosh the the Muromachi period volumes are five volumes which are devoted to Japanese language particularly in the Muromachi period 1333 mm-hmm. to 1600 uh, and I and I'm very painstaking about this and I and I worry about everything I really I worry about every word Mm. I consider saying. And and I've always felt that that a translation ought to, in addition to being accurate in terms of the contents, it Mm. needs to be absolutely accurate. One needs to try to add as little as possible Mm -hmm. and also to leave out as little as possible. It needs to be as accurate as possible. And yet at the same time, it it ought to feel like, when you read it in English, it ought to feel like what it feels like to read it in Japanese. Mm. And that's really what I go for, and, and it's kind of an impossible task. I mean, ideally, we would all be reading these things only in the original, but it's very difficult. Um, it's difficult for native Japanese speakers because these are these are tough unannotated texts in many cases. Um, so anyway, but after figuring out these texts, sort of painstakingly reading them, making sense of them all, then I try to somehow capture the the feeling in English. Um, what is it? You know, what does it feel like to read a work like? like shintoku maru which is which can be very dark very depressing um and yet at the same time the the prose is sort of very light and it has this very whimsical kind of quality to it This almost sing-songy type of feeling to it and so i i really struggle to to get that Mm -hmm. um so it's um it i guess for me the process of translation is very painful uh Mm -hmm. it's i feel like i'm pulling out my own teeth i mean literally i start pulling out my eyebrows it's not a good nervous (laughs) habit to have but i find myself occasionally as i'm doing this i realize that i've pulled out you know um a lot of my eyebrows and it it hurts doing it and i know that it hurts but somehow (laughs) (laughs) that 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 sounds like a code plot right there i don't want to sound crazy here but it's it's uh it's a neurotic process yeah yeah. Okay, so that, um, thank you. But I can't not do it. It's just, I find yeah. these stories and I, I've,
1: they're so interesting that I have to try and get them out there for people to read. Yeah, well, that brings me to the uh, second question I want to ask about quen- uh, translation, which is sort of a double question. I mean, uh, and the question is, uh, what do you see as the place of translation in the, ang- in the world of Anglophone Japanese studies? And, so, yeah. and the, so, sort of the second part of that question is, I mean, who's your intended audience? Is it uh, undergraduate students um, who are using it in a college class? Is it other scholars who probably could read the original so they took the time, but they probably aren't going to get around to it because it's, you know, outside of their specialty, but would like to read a translation of it? Or is it just for, you know, lawyers and ice cream scoopers and dock workers who want to delve into the world of 17th century Japan on the weekends?
0: Oh, I don't, you know, finally, I, I kind of do it for me and for my students. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach these courses. I, I, I teach all sorts of courses on Japanese literature, Edo period literature, medieval literature, and Heian period literature. And, um, but, I, but I find that I find these stories and I want to teach them. I want, I want my students to read them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just want them out there so people can see them. And I realize most people are, you know, these, these stories probably won't appeal to a broad audience. Um, and that's too bad. But um but I, but at least I want to be able to assign them to my own classes and have my students read them. And, and for the most part, my students have really enjoyed them. Um, yeah. You know, there's some works that I've translated that are just that are just so disturbing and so awful. I did a translation of a work called Fujino Hitowan Asoshi, the Tale of the Fuji Cave, and it's a hell tour narrative. And the the protagonist is guided through hell and shown the various ways that people are being tortured in hell and the, their crimes in the human world are explained to the person. And 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 it and the work is so. Misogynist and so biased and, and really so awful and then finally so so horrible and brutal that 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 until I got tenure anyway I wouldn't <laughs> assign that translation for my classes until after my students had written their student evaluations for the course
1: yeah
0: that's right, right somebody's gonna you know I, I mean the stuff it's really awful stuff. But, um, but the students they respond to this and I remember after one particular semester there was a, this very nice young female student who you know just seemed just a very I mean it's not the kind of person you would think would enjoy this kind of yeah. thing is what I mean, and, and when the class was over she came up and she said she said I adored that work I mm. loved the tale of the Fuji I said you did it's, 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 it's horrible it talks about in minute detail physical torture of people um, but she, she liked it so mm. I like it too uh, i was i was once accused after giving a conference presentation of enjoying this material too much and, uh, <laughs> and i I, uh, I i like it and i'm not sure why uh,
1: i probably should uh, but... well that that, that that that's another interview topic i suppose <laughs> <laughs> um so as, as as a final question uh what uh what are you working on now uh, oh, you know, oh. I, I, I should mention again for listeners that you, you've you yeah. already submitted this uh, article that's on the topic of uh, brutality and violence and marginality within uh, Kojo-Ruri, uh, Ruri, right. um, which will be coming out, I guess, in 2015 sometime, hopefully.
0: Oh, uh, so we'll, I don't know. Okay. So anyway, I've submitted it to a journal and we'll sure. see whether they, they want it or not and yeah. this kind of thing. And, and that's a... That, Okay, so I, I've been very interested recently in issue the issues of violence, sensational representational violence in the early theater in the 17th century and in medieval fiction in general. And so the article you're talking about, staging senseless violence, it's based on a paper that I gave at a theater conference at Yale about a year ago, and um, and then I've expanded it and reworked it, and and. Um, it's, it's about great material. you know. I'm, I'm really most excited about the things that I'm working on now. Mm. There's there's that particular article. And then I have a new article that's going to be coming out in the spring 2015 issue of Asian Ethnology, uh, which is um, titled Bloody Hell, exclamation point, Reading Boys' Books in 17th Century Japan. And that's actually about a trove of children's books that was discovered sealed up inside a statue of Jizo in Mie Prefecture. Uh, the, the, the books were sealed up inside the statue in 1670. They were only discovered in the 1980s, and they were owned by a boy who uh, died at a very young age. We don't know his exact age, you know, he was probably nine, 10. 11, 12, 13, we don't know, years old. Uh, and when he died, his father took his son's books and sealed them up inside this statue along with his calligraphy practice sheets. And And the books are wonderful. But again, they're horrific. They are, they are full of blood and gore and guts. And someone, probably the, the boy who owned the books, had colored in many of the illustrations in the work, uh, painting in blood, spurting out of severed heads, this kind of thing. So wow. anyway, I've been very interested in... The motif of violence in the theater and it published works for children and this kind of thing. But um, yeah, that's well, just, you know, my other big thing I want to move on to is samurai tales, koakamai fiction. So I have a, a whole volume like Wondrous Brutal Fictions that I would like to do. So stories that got left out of Wondrous Brutal Fictions mm-hmm. that are really in the koakamai genre.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to those articles coming out. Um, and uh, yeah, so I just wanted to thank you very much for speaking with me today. And thank our listeners for tuning in. And that's it for today's show. Thank you you very much. Okay, see you next time.